Welcome to Swift Unwrapped, a weekly podcast about the Swift programming language and other projects at Swift.org. I'm Jesse Squires. I'm JP Smart. Uh, and today we're going to discuss Ted Kremenich has announced that uh, Swift.org and the Swift projects will be participating in uh, the Google Summer of Code 2018. Yeah, so the Google Summer of Code, uh, for those of you who um, haven't heard of it, is a yearly program that Google puts up. Uh, that gets students together to participate in some open source software development. Uh, it's a three-month program where um, students are paired with mentors. Uh, usually these are students from universities. They receive um, a little bit of money, kind of like an internship, but their sole focus is really to work on open source things. Yeah, uh, and getting paid for open source. Ah, what it's a- the dream. Yeah. Uh, but it only lasts three months, so <laughs> yeah. uh, good luck. <laughs> uh, it's just a taste. Um, and so uh, it's very exciting. There's lots of these projects that are uh, on Google Summer of Code. Um, there's over 600 open source organizations that that participate on this, and it's things like LVM, um, lots of open source software that pretty much every major open source software that you've heard of participates here. So it's nice to see Swift um, to be uh, an, an official project. Yeah. Uh, it's somewhat interesting given the the relationship between Apple and Google, but uh, yeah, nonetheless, good to see it there. Well, the growing relationship with Google and Swift as well. Uh, yes. Yeah. So with... Um, the Fuchsia OS starting to gain some support for Swift, some Google folks contributing to right. uh, the Swift compiler and projects. Um, obviously, uh, Chris Latner joining the Google Brain team and still continuing to contribute to Swift. Right. It's a growing relationship, clearly. Yeah, and seems to be uh, positive for the language in general, so it's good to see. Absolutely. Yeah, so... Uh, there are a bunch of projects outlined on Swift.org. Seems like there are two major themes, uh, kind of libsyntax-related uh, tooling and integrations, and then uh, some SPM improvements and enhancements. Yeah, well, I think those two portions are, are fairly accessible uh, yeah. in the sense that um, for most of those, you could actually get away with... Uh, with only Swift knowledge, um, yeah. and you know, probably pick up you know, if C++ if needed, or um, build process knowledge. Uh, one of them especially focuses around uh, terminal behavior, so like shell behaviors and in, in terminal and TTY uh, uh, features. Mm-hmm. So it really makes sense to split these up into those two categories because they're pretty approachable. Right, and I guess you avoid Swift evolution with these tools as well. That's a great point. <laughs> yeah. uh, I was thinking when I first saw the announcement, like, oh, if there are projects that involve the standard library, how will that work? But uh, I guess this makes sense to kind of avoid that. They steered clear yeah. of that, yeah. yeah. 
these are also projects that uh, need to make sense on uh, a fairly short timeline, right? So they can't be, um, let's uh, wrap up ABI stability, right? As an intern project over three months. Right. Um, let's revamp source control or access control uh, right. again. Asking access control version 10, uh, final, final version. Yeah. Yeah, right. uh, so there's this list of project ideas, like Jesse mentioned. These are just ideas. Um, there is no obligation for students that want to participate in Google, Google Summer of Code and want to work on Swift to do exactly one of these. Um, but these are great directions to go in, and uh, you're definitely – going to face uh, a lot less resistance if you just want to pick one of these versus whatever your own pet project um, preference is to build into Swift because this comes straight from the Swift team. And so it's right. it's things that they uh, have wanted to do probably uh, in some cases for a while, uh, but lack um, uh, someone coming in with just the focus of doing just that. Right, right. Yeah, which means they probably have some rough ideas kind of fleshed out already. Um and hopefully, uh, yeah, you know, it'd, it'd be easy to get started and kind of wrap these things up over right. a, a summer. So, And that's where the mentors come in, too. So all these projects have mentors that um, that have uh, volunteered to, to help Google Summer of Code participants. Uh, and so those mentors probably have a decent idea sketched out in their minds of, like, a potential way to accomplish these projects. Yeah, uh, I'm assuming these students, uh, they wherever they are from, they come to the Bay Area and like work with these people directly. Or I'm not sure. Yeah, I wonder if there's any like remote based stuff there. Just curious. Yeah, yeah. that's that's a good question. Um, I'm not sure myself. Yeah, I'm sure they fly students out here. Perhaps, um, but not all of the 600 organizations that participate are located in the Bay Area. Um, That's true. So uh, I'm really not sure. I I, I do vaguely recall a um, friend of a friend who participated mm-hmm. uh, out of Chicago, I believe. Um, and so it's possible hmm. that you you don't need to uh, to fly out anywhere for this. Yeah. Uh, but. Yeah, you should really check out the website. It's uh, summerofcode.withgoogle.com, and hopefully um, there's more information there if you actually scour the site rather than listen to us bozos talk about it. (laughs) What a strange URL. Yes, quite. I don't know what if withgoogle.com actually resolves to anything, but it seems like an incomplete sentence. (laughs) Nope, it just directs to google.com. Anyway, there we go. Uh, so about these projects, um, what projects uh, are there that people can look forward to contributing to? Well, first one here is a fuzzing or stress testing tool uh, using libsyntax, which is the newer library. I think we've discussed this before, actually. There's the announcement a while back about... Um, uh, what was it? Uh, providing a uh, framework for uh, these kinds of developer tools. Um, and libsyntax was part of that. Yeah, we have talked about it briefly before. Um, it's uh, this new part of the compiler that um, 
Harlan Haskins, along with some other people, uh, uh, ended up developing and it's a new way for um, – it's it's the Swift library that derives from definition files, syntax definition files to that, that feed both the parser in the compiler and also this library. So um, rather than kind of write Swift wrappers to a C++ part that kind of depends on LVM, the part of the compiler that does the parsing, rather than do that – um, the architecture has been to move the syntax definition into these .def files, these def files, um, and then that's kind of the source of truth that then the compiler derives its parsing impl- implementation from. And then libsyntax is an entirely parallel uh, project that derives Swift bindings to um, those those uh, parser definition files. So it's a way for your, uh, you via Swift code um, to interact with Swift source code and do things like um, AST manipulation, uh, but slightly lower level than AST where it's, it's not um, it's, it's really just the, the tokens. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's really just about syntax and no semantic information. Um, so this, this project is still uh, kind of, incomplete or in its early days, I guess you could say, right? where um, a lot of the different syntax uh, combinations in Swift aren't supported still. Um, and there's a lot of potential for this project to be leveraged both within the Swift compiler and with external tools uh, that we'll get into in these project ideas. Right. So the, uh, the goal here with this... Um uh, with this project is to uh, kind of stress test uh, the compiler, try to catch different crashes or hangs, anything where you uh, have mutations that lead to invalid code and also improving functionality like code completion and improving like the ref- the current refactoring uh, tooling. Yeah, um, this really reminds me of uh, this program called CSmith, which mm-hmm. is a tool that generates random um, C programs that uh, actually are valid C99 code. Um, and it can just kind of spit out all sorts of random valid C programs. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and that's super useful for stress testing compilers and other tools that deal with C code. And so this kind of seems like potentially a Swift equivalent to that, um, with integration points into kind of testing infrastructure mm-hmm. um, so that uh, th- I, I really see this as kind of two components, right? You could imagine um, the first step here being to create a Swift equivalent for CSmith, which is like SwiftSmith that will <laughs> right. just spit out all sorts of random Swift programs. Um, and then the second I would even say like potentially much larger part is integration points into the rest of the testing infrastructure so that you can test source kit D's cursor info functionality, um, Swift intermediate language generation, code completion. Uh, that seems like the harder challenge to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would even say like, hey, if a student within three months can leverage lib syntax and create something uh, equivalent in Smith in Swift to C Smith, uh, that that's uh, a a pretty successful um, project. Yeah, 
Yeah, that'd be great to see. Um, and the last thing I want to say on that front is um, some people have already taken to fuzzing the Swift compiler. Uh, Practical Swift yeah. is um, uh, someone that comes to mind. Uh, but I'm not sure to what extent their tooling, what their tooling looked like. Right. Um, if it had, I assume it must have had some knowledge of uh, Swift syntax and Swift program structure mm-hmm. in order to optimize finding things that would actually crash the Swift compiler. Right. But you can think of like the most naive way to do this, which is just like to generate random strings and feed it to the Swift compiler mm-hmm. and like parallelize that and try to introduce. Um, randomization in there so that uh, the Swift compiler would crash. Yeah. If you look at the main Swift repo, you'll see tons of uh, pull requests from Practical Swift with uh, uh, crashers from that fuzzer. Yeah, so a very interesting project. Many of those crashers have been resolved, by the way. Uh, Yeah, um, I'm just adding a link to the show notes here uh, for the... 1,473 closed pull requests from Practical Swift to the Swift uh, repo that's mostly adding crashers. Yeah, nice. Cool, the next project here is a libsyntax-based indentation mechanism. And so that's going to replace, the goal here is to replace the existing Swift indentation mechanism with uh, a new one based on libsyntax. Uh, it also address uh, cases where the existing indentation results are subpar. Yeah, the the indentation engine um, is it seems really rudimentary right now within Swift. Yeah, um, I'm more I'm talking more about the implementation than the end result, which is also pretty rudimentary. Yeah, um, but uh, there's this lib IDE part of the Swift compiler code base, mm-hmm. which. SourceKit leverages for things like exposing um, formatting of Swift code. And really, this is, so far, Swift's formatting logic, um, or or reformatting logic, I should say, has been more or less constrained to just indentation. So think when you have like a random string in your clipboard and you paste it into Xcode, and it'll apply its own kind of idea and opinions of how that code should be indented. Mm -hmm. Um, That appears to me to be the entirety of the formatting engine. Um, Mm -hmm. And so by being able to leverage lib syntax, it seems like you'd be able to um, have something that's a lot more flexible and a lot more semantic, uh, semantically defined Mm -hmm. um, rather than uh, the manual hand-rolled approach that is in libid today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can't say I'm particularly uh, offended by the existing uh, default indentation, but I know lots of people are particular about that. Well, there are really just cases in which um, the results are subpar. Yeah, where yes. um, it'll be improperly parsed, and therefore, like something will be split on a new line at a terrible position. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's actually, no, there is one case where you have, uh, if you have where clauses to constrain a class definition, yeah. uh, you know, you could have like, it, it would be this very long uh, line. So you want to put that on a new line, but the indentation there is actually terrible. <laughs> uh, just totally left aligns where right. you'd kind of want, I don't know, at least some sort of structure to that to make it mm-hmm. more readable, but... 
One that comes to mind is multi-line arrays as well, where the trailing uh, closing square bracket is going to be on the same line as um, the contents of the array rather than indented one level less. Um, I mean, a lot of this ends up being a matter of opinion as well and personal preference. Right. But you, there's a large body of existing Swift style guides that are out there. Um, and I think, uh, it'd be wise to look to them for at least some, um, pulse of what the community feels um, mm-hmm. should be idiomatic. Right. Moving on. Um, there's a project idea to, um, have more Swift compiler integration with external tools. Sounds amazing. Yeah. So this is described here as being a compiler option that provides a path to an external tool for the compiler to execute and communicate with. This communication can be done via standard in, standard out using a JSON format. A compiler should pass the compiler arguments and the lib syntax tree of the currently compiling source file, allowing the tool to return custom diagnostics that the compiler includes along with the rest of the compiler diagnostics. Uh, this is amazing because... Um, uh, I'd heard of like a previous version of this floating around as an idea where it would only return the lib syntax tree mm-hmm. without the compiler arguments. And um, that is fairly limiting in terms of what uh, an external tool can do. But if the external tool has the compiler arguments as well, mm-hmm. it can do things that are a lot more semantically rich with um, the compilation process. Because if you just get kind of a flat, array or tree of syntax nodes. Yeah. Um, you don't necessarily know if this count token, which is an identifier accessed as uh, the calling side of accessing a property, you don't know where that count is defined. If it's defined in the standard library, if it's assi- defined in your own file, mm. uh, in a separate module, your own module, any of that. And, um, if you can say, like, guarantee that it's the count member of a collection, uh, then you might be able to do certain things in in linting or formatting, for example. Mm-hmm. How would having the uh, compiler arguments help determine that? Well, if you just get a flat tree of syntax nodes, sure. um, you you can't assign semantic meaning there. Um, mm-hmm. Let me try to give a more concrete example. Um if you're trying to integrate this with uh, some sort of linter tool that would detect XC test case subclass test functions, yeah. if you just get a flat array or a flat tree of the syntax nodes, you don't know if XC test case, if you do see that in the syntax nodes, is actually the one that's defined in the XC test framework. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just because of what that's named, it's highly unlikely that it would be anything else. But uh, think of the result uh, type that's defined in like a hundred, a thousand different places and all sorts of code bases, mm-hmm. and it all def- um, behaves a little differently. Or when you have overloaded uh, functions or identifiers that um, with Swift compiler arguments you can actually distinguish between, but with the flat tree of syntax nodes, you cannot. Um, you might be able to perform different actions with these external tools. I see. Uh, another thing that you could do is, um, like, for example, Jazzy, a documentation generator, could hook into this mm-hmm. um, because it requires uh, 
all of the compilation arguments as well in order to use SourceKit um, to be able to get documentation info on on the entire project. Right. Uh, which from just the flat lib syntax tree, you wouldn't be able to get that. I see, I see. Uh, and those are really only some examples. Like you could also do, uh, like for example, sorcery could leverage this for uh, for accurate code gen as well as part that's built into say Swift PM. Sure. Um, so I I'm extremely excited about this. Yeah, could also be used uh, for Swiftlint as well, right? Yeah, Swiftlint could definitely use this um, by leveraging the lib syntax tree, uh, probably for most syntactical linting things, mm-hmm. and then leveraging the compiler arguments for disambiguating semantically what uh, what what certain calls are. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Cool. And the uh, the final project here dealing with libsyntax is integrating it with the rest of the uh, compiler pipeline. So that would involve taking the libsyntax tree uh, and making use of it across um, the type checker, diagnostics, uh, things like that. Um, it, it, it would also involve having uh, the parser generate uh, only a libsyntax tree, um, derive the AST nodes uh, from that tree, and have the AST nodes point to the libsyntax lib nodes for um, source information as well. Yeah, so one... A point as to how the Swift compiler works today is um, when it when it's compiling a file, uh, it holds on to the source of that file essentially f- forever as long as uh, until that compilation process completes, um, and ideally the entire file would be rather than just kind of hold this flat um, this flat string which mm-hmm. is the contents of the file. Uh, you would throw that away and only preserve the um, structured lib syntax tree, mm-hmm. so that um, you're rather than trying to identify like source locations in the file after the fact, that would kind of be done up front. Uh, that would preserve trivia such as white space and commas and semicolons and. Mm-hmm. Um, because all that would be encoded in the lib syntax AST. Exactly. Yeah. In the lib syntax tree. Um, so it, it seems a lot nicer moving forward. And yeah. so this is proposing even having a serialized representation of the lib syntax tree so that um, uh, the com- compiler front end could pass the serialized version of the, li- of the syntax tree uh, to its child processes, for example. Uh, it seems like a really nice cleanup. Um, but for this to work, lib syntax would need to actually like support all of Swift, right? Right. Uh, so right. there's there's a lot of work that needs to happen there too. Yeah, they also mentioned here that uh, this could allow for type checking and code generation functionality without needing to parse the code. Right, and this could enable future work for inc- implementing incremental reparsing. Because uh, yeah. right now, if you touch a file in Swift, um, the Swift compiler doesn't really know what part of the file you touched. Right. Um, but uh, with this, it might enable incremental reparsing, which would provide a lot more fine grain uh, behavior. Yeah. All right. Next one here um, is the first one that touches on Swift Package Manager, uh, which is to auto-generate the Linux main.swift file for Linux. So 
uh, for any, anyone who's uh, never um, written Swift on Linux, when you're writing your tests uh, that need to run on Linux, because there's no Objective-C runtime on Linux, and that's the mechanism by which XC test determines what your test functions are right. and what to run, uh, they need to be explicitly annotated in a Linux main.swift file where you list out um, all of your function pointers that run th- that are your test cases. Mm-hmm. And then when you run um, Swift tests from the command line, which is the Swift package manager's test uh, mechanism, it will then just iterate over everything in Linux main and run all of, all of the functions that are listed in there. Um, this is uh, very tedious to maintain for library maintainers because uh, it's very easy to just add a test case um, like you would in in Xcode and then forget to add it to your Linux main. Right, so then it never gets run. It never gets run, and uh, the Swift package manager has no mechanism to let you know that <laughs> something's out of date, um, yeah. which that's being worked on. But uh, ultimately, wouldn't it be nice if you didn't have to generate this file at all uh, or you didn't have to write this file at mm-hmm. all as a developer? Um, and so there are definitely ways to do this. In fact, sorcery... Um, uses SourceKitten, uses SourceKit to actually do this as well um, mm-hmm. that I highly recommend, which is uh, just leveraging CodeGen to um, to go and iterate through all of your XC test case subclasses mm-hmm. and uh, look at the test functions that are in there and generate this file automatically. Um, so this project here proposes to do exactly that, really, um, by leveraging SourceKit's C APIs to... Uh, automatically code gen this Linux main f- file as part of the Swift test um, invocation. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, I think this is potentially n- not the right way to move forward on this. Um, I'd much rather see a world in which we remove the need for Linux main altogether. Right. And uh, if the Swift test process can, um, uh, can at runtime do this source kit introspection of uh, your your test directory, uh, right? And um, potentially just in time compile the equivalent of the Linux main file. Mm-hmm. At the very least, um, it should be pretty easy to rather than generate it in uh, the main directory where people explicitly write it out today, just generate it to a temporary file Mm -hmm. and then compile that and then run the compiled process of that. But I even think that would be a half step. Um, I would much rather see Linux main not even be written out to disk at all and have this just, just in time interpreted. Yeah. It could be the same mechanism by which, uh, we get the automatic equatable and hashable conformance, in Swift 4.1, which is coming. Potentially. So where the compiler auto-generates this thing for you and then you don't have to worry about it. Um, That's not exactly what I'm thinking of, but that would definitely be another way to go about it. Yeah. Um, Where, for example, the Swift intermediate language would be generated. Like That's that's how the compiler auto-synthesizes the equatable and hashable implementations. Um, Now, because... the Swift package manager lives in a level above the Swift compiler. Yeah. Um, it can still, it, it'll be a little harder for it to generate mm-hmm. uh, Swift to intermediate language. Um, 
But anyway, th- those are all different directions that this could go in. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, I, I like the I like the idea here, but I think it, even within a three month project, this could go a little further. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, the next uh, idea here uh, for uh, SPM uh, is to build a tool to suggest your next uh, SimVert tag for a package. So if you're on version 1.2, let's say you make some public API changes that are breaking, uh, then SPM could say, oh, your next tag should be 2.0 because you just made breaking changes. Uh, If you only made additions, for example, then maybe it would suggest 1.3. Um, seems interesting. Yeah, um, I've seen a few open source projects actually attempt this built on SourceKit as well. Um, so this would really just to be to build that into Swift Package Manager. Um, I don't know to what extent those open source versions of this have been uh, comprehensive, but um, there's definitely a prior art here that you can look to. Yeah, it would be nice to have some sort of automated kind of enforcement or kind of warnings about Simver. Um, I feel like a lot of people don't know or maybe choose not to follow that for whatever reason, and uh, this could help. Yeah, and the reason this would need to be built as, as part of Swift Package Manager is that you need um, you need a way to compare against previous compilations. Right, you you can't just run this at compile time with no additional information. You actually need to uh, present a previous version of the API that it can compare against. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, only the Swift Package Manager deals with ver- versioning like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, next up is uh, improving command line status reporting. If you've ever used Buck, uh, they give that as an example, actually, for when you're building... Uh, using SPM, you'll see output similar to what Buck produces uh, during compilation. They include like uh, a little GIF here of what of what that looks like. I used Buck for two years while at IG and Facebook, and uh, it is it's a nice tool. Yeah, uh, it's good to see. Uh, or you know, I think part of that like very nice developer experience with Buck is partly because Buck took forever to build projects there. Uh, so it was nice to see like detailed uh, output. Uh, I don't know if any SPM projects are big enough that this will make a huge difference, but uh, it's always nice to provide a better dev experience, I think. Well, I'm sure if you're um, building web servers on Swift Package Manager and those pull in Vapor, Kitura, like uh, like the hundred projects that those depend on, yeah. uh, I'm sure it can take some time. Yeah. Uh, or even building Swift PM itself, which can be built using Swift PM. <laughs> um, yeah, right. <laughs> uh, I'm sure is, is also not a super quick compilation. That's very true. And then there's a last uh, Swift PM project idea here, which is to mechanically edit the package.swift manifest file. So the package.swift manifest file is how Swift PM defines uh, the project layout, uh, all of the targets, the executables, libraries, the tests, the dependencies, all of that. Um, wouldn't it be nice if you could just do Swift package add uh, result.swift? 
or mm-hmm. you pass in like the URL to Git repo that has the the frame the library that you want to depend on. Mm-hmm. So this would definitely be possible. One way to do this is to actually uh, kind of leverage lib syntax again and to serialize the the existing or, or to parse the existing package manifest with file and then to insert uh, the node the the syntax node at, nodes at the appropriate place right such as like for example um, a dependency in the array of de- dependencies mm-hmm. and then this could even you know preserve the existing source um, the the way it's um, proposing to do it here yeah, is to require using source kit to figure out the cur- cursor positions where the new entries should be inserted. Mm-hmm. I think that's the wrong way to go about it. Um, if lib syntax is actually fleshed out the way that uh, a lot of these projects require it to be mm-hmm. fleshed out, you wouldn't need to to use source kit at all. You could really just build this on lib syntax, which has the nice advantage of being much smaller because it doesn't need to provide an interface to the entire Swift compiler. It's right. just this very lightweight Swift library that's derived out of these definition files that we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that kind of wraps up the projects for Google Summer of Code for the Swift.org uh, projects. Uh, that's all we have for today. I'm Jesse Squires. You can find me on Twitter at Jesse underscore Squires. You can find the show at Swift underscore Unwrapped. You can find me on Twitter at SimJP. And if you'd like to join the conversation, join us at Spectrum.chat. Thanks for listening.